it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. Welcome to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Brad Thomas. If you don't know who he is, all you got to do is go to SeekingAlpha.com. His face is pretty much on there on the trending articles. He's probably one of the most popular, if not the most popular writer for Seeking Alpha. So Brad, thanks for joining us. Can you give us a little bit about your background? You're kind of the REIT expert on Seeking Alpha. What is a REIT and how did you get into it? Sure. And I'll try to keep it Pretty short. So my background is about over 30 years of real estate investing. For 20 years, I was a developer. Actually, I started out as a leasing agent, to be clear, right out of college. And then a couple of years into that, when I saw the money going to become a landlord, is how you actually create a wealth, not just being a leasing agent or a broker. So I gravitated into the development world, started out small with some companies like Advance Auto Parts, which are freestanding net lease properties and uh, Dollar General, again, freestanding net lease properties. And then I gravitated into shopping centers, putting together two tenants or three tenants. Uh, Obviously, there's economies of scale with having a parking lot and common walls and better returns to build shopping centers than net lease. So I moved into some grocery anchored product and as well as to Walmart and uh, some big mixed-use projects. So I've touched about every property sector. I built warehouses, had some Goodyear tire warehouses, owned a bunch of duplexes, so single-family rentals. So I've done a lot over the years, and then basically everything kind of moved up. I was growing and uh, had five kids, so along the way, managed to uh, have uh, four girls and a boy. This thing happened called the Great Recession, 2008. I really allowed me to change my life. And I really never imagined and never really thought about or anticipated becoming a writer or an analyst. I did take some writing courses in college, creative writing and business writing courses, but I never really majored in, in that subject. 
I did write the rap review in high school. So it tells you a little bit about me. I'm a little bit of a rapper as well. I'm not going to do any on the show. Don't worry. (laughs) Anyway, so when the recession hit, you know, I just went to Seeking Alpha. I thought, well, there's a cool site. I'd start writing. Maybe they'll take one of my articles. Who knows if they'll let me publish something. And they let me publish one article and that turned into two. Two turned into, you know, 200 in the 2000. And I think I'm over the 4,000 mark now. I don't know. It's something like that. 12 years of writing, almost an article every day for 12 years. I did take maybe a couple of days off, but not many. So obviously I love what I do. I mean, I wouldn't be writing an article a day if I didn't like writing. But what really drives me is not just writing. And really, it's not about making money. It's about educating investors. You know, again, I've got a lot of experience in real estate. That means I've gone through some really good times. I've gone through some really bad times. And especially in the Great Recession, when I just about lost everything. And that was not just because of the recession, by the way. It was through some bad partnerships, high leverage. It was through lack of transparency and a number of other things. So uh, that got me into writing on Seeking Alpha. I've always liked real estate and I felt like there was really a void at that time in helping individual investors learn how to make money in real estate, but specifically real estate investment trust. So that's really when the light went off and I decided there was a great market at that time, a niche market to really try to focus on. And so that's what I've done for the last 12 years. And I do have over 100,000 followers on Seeking Alpha. And I appreciate all of my followers. And it's been a great ride. That's pretty much it. That's really cool and inspiring. And we love that focus on education. So, you know, you talk a little bit about building up some of these projects. You said you were a leasing agent at the time. Are, are you talking about like hammer and nail or you were an investor in these projects? What are you talking about here? And how did that kind of shape how you think about REITs today? Yeah, so I actually, I got my real estate license when I was in college. The school I went to actually had a real estate course. So I took the course and I became a licensed agent. And I still am a licensed agent in the state of South Carolina, where I'm located now. And so I went to work for a developer. I decided, you know, best thing for me is to kind of go boots on the ground, go work for a developer. And so I moved to Spartanburg, South Carolina, where I'm sitting right here today. My business partner at the time, actually my boss at the time, was in the process of building a brand new power center. Well, at the time, I didn't know what a power center was. Nobody knew what a power center was. And for those of you who don't know, a power center is a large shopping center, not a grocery center, which is typically 75,000 feet. I'm talking, you know, This center was maybe 400,000 square feet, had multiple large discount anchors. So there was a Home Depot, TJ Maxx, Michael's Crafts. And so I did all the small shop leasing. So I was a leasing agent. I got paid as a broker and, you know, made some good fees for leasing space. But after, you know, two or three years into that, I thought, well, you know, I'm making good money, but if you're making great money, you need to be collecting those rent checks. And the guys that I was working for who helped them you know, negotiate these leases were the ones making the money. So I saw that very quickly early on. And that's when I decided I wanted to be a real estate developer or a real estate landlord. And so again, I started with these smaller net lease properties. That was a way that I didn't have a huge financial statement back then. Actually, I started out buying some housings first. My first house paid $50,000 for it. I had a guy living up front, a second floor, and I had a roommate and they were both paying me $200 a month each. So I had 400 coming in. I had the owner, this is my first house. The lady sold me the house owner financing because I had no credit. I had a student loan, no assets, had a car. And so she loaned me the money to buy the house and I had 400 coming in. So I was like living you know, right out of college in a house that I own and somebody else was paying for it. And, uh, and by the way, 
I was the house is beside a college, female college, you know, all women college. So perfect real estate. It's all about real estate location, location, location. And so anyway, we did that for a couple of years and, you know, built up some equity. And then, of course, I found my wife and she found me. We got married. So naturally, I moved on to the next house. And I, but I started buying up some duplexes, understanding you know, other people's money, you know, how I can buy real estate without hardly any money at all. And that's how I started. And then when I got into commercial real estate, it was with, again, my first customer was Advanced Auto Parts headquartered. At the time, they were headquartered in Roanoke, Virginia. Now they're in Raleigh, North Carolina, right there where Andrew is. But I remember they were a private company at the time. They weren't publicly listed. They had about 100 locations. And I remember my first location in Union, South Carolina, and then I expanded beyond that. I went to Lawrence, South Carolina, Malden, South Carolina, Walterboro, South Carolina, Boone, North Carolina, Coleman, Alabama, all over Georgia. Ended up building about 50 stores for Advanced Auto. And then I moved into some other tenants trying to diversify. At the time, Blockbuster Video was a growth company. One of my good friends here in Spartanburg was a large franchisee or actually a small franchisee back then. So we built some stores, helped him become a large franchisee. He eventually sold those stores back to Blockbuster. And so that's where it all started. So I've always had a passion for real estate, tremendous amount of wealth that can be made in real estate. But, you know, REITs are terrific because individual investors don't take on that risk. I mean, it's a lot of things I just told you about. I mean, leverage, tenant concentration. When you own rental houses, you have what I call the three T's and you want to avoid these three T's. That's the, you know, the toilets, the trash and the taxes. You want to avoid those things because they... You know, it's not as easy as it seems when you go on these channel, these TV programs, they'll make it look so simple. Just buy a rental house, fix and flip or whatever you're going to do. But it is so hard. Being a landlord is really challenging. And, you know, I've had to fix plenty of toilets in my life and obviously pay all the taxes and tenants. Dealing with tenants is very you know, aggravating. You know, REITs offer this very compelling business opportunity where you just don't, you can own the real estate, have all the benefits of the real estate, the wealth creation, but not deal with all of the stress. So that's really, after going through this for 20 years and building up my wealth, you know, traditional private real estate, I can tell you owning REITs is the way to go. It's much more less stressful than having to own, you know, private real estate. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. 
Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Yeah, that's awesome. Those are all great insights. So how does an investor start investing in REITs? Like, what are some areas that they should look for? What are some things they should look for positively and, I guess, negatively? Sure. So I think to start, first of all, I mean, a REIT is a real estate investment trust. And of course, I will say I wrote a book, written two books, actually, but my latest book is called The Intelligent REIT Investor Guide. It just went out. Wiley's my publisher. And I talk about the basic, you know, how do you get started in that? Of course, REIT is a stock. So you can own, you know, literally what you can own a half a share, whatever. One share of stock is really all it takes. So it's not unlike real traditional real estate, doesn't cost a whole lot of money to get in the game. There are in the U.S. specifically, and we'll just talk about U.S. here on this show. There are about 150 U.S. equity REITs and equity is different from mortgage REITs. Equity REITs own the real estate, the physical real estate. Mortgage REITs are lenders, so they actually don't have the title or the, to the real estate. So um, roughly about 150 equity REITs, and then there are the mortgage REITs as well. So we cover, or you can the investable universe, I'll call it, is roughly around 200 uh, U.S. REITs or securities. And so the great thing is, and this actually has really been transformational over the last 10 years while I've been writing, is the number of sectors that you can now, property sectors, that is, that you can invest in today you know, back even go back 15, 20 years ago, you know, you really had just the basic what I call food group of real estate. You had maybe apartments, uh, you had retail and maybe you had office buildings. Now the universe, again, has expanded into healthcare and now different subsectors of healthcare where you could skill nursing, senior housing, medical office buildings, hospitals, even life science uh, which has really been a fantastic place uh, to invest. We also have the what we call, I call the technology trifecta. And this has all really been over the last decade where you have cell tower REITs, uh, you have data center REITs, and then you have logistics uh, warehouses. And they're all connected to the technology. We call them the three stools to technology investing. And you think about it, they're all correlated because the cell tower generates the signal that for the purchase, online purchase into the data center, it's fulfilled. Everything's held in the cloud. So Amazon, Facebook, Google, all the hyperscalers are over there in the cloud. So you have these data center REITs. And then, of course, the last mile, which we talk about, is where the product ships from that warehouse to your house. You have all these logistic facilities, which Amazon is a big tenant in some of those, and FedEx and a lot of most all these retailers. So technology's really been a sector we've really been interested in. A lot of growth there, just like in the technology stocks that you look at today, we're seeing some really strong double-digit growth 
rates and technology and those names. The retail world is really can be split up two or three different baskets or even potentially four. Uh, you have the malls, traditional malls, which have obviously been under a tremendous amount of pressure with COVID. Uh, we actually said, I think we were in the, one of the first, if not the only on Seeking Alpha that said before COVID that there were way too many malls in the U.S. We should go underweight, if anything, avoid those names because of the uh, oversupply of mall product in the U.S. There were, prior to COVID, over 1,400 malls, traditional malls, meaning malls that had four anchors, JCPenney, Sears, Belks, Dillard's, you know, four anchors. And because of that oversupply, we felt like there was going to be some challenges. So we avoided some of these companies we call sucker yields. Some of those aren't in business anymore, by the way. So you have companies like Washington Prime. Again, we I would say we caught, we definitely call that one. We said to avoid that one, you know, whether it's 12% yield, 15, 20, 30, whatever that yield was, sure, sure it was uh, tempting for a lot of investors, but not us, because we looked at the fundamentals and knew that there was just way too much product. So malls, shopping centers, and you can divide that into you know, grocery anchored or uh, community centers. You've got a lot of different ways to play shopping, the shopping center game in the REIT space. You have some focused funds like uh, Erstat Biddle primarily in the Northeast. And then you have Regency, which is the, one of the bigger names. They've got a lot of publics and really all over the all over the Sunbelt markets and over to the West Coast. Uh, Kimco is, is the largest. And then you've got some other smaller names. So shopping center sector and then net lease is the other category, which is predominantly retail. Companies like Realty Income, National Retail Properties, Store Capital, Spirit. There's been a growing list of net lease real estate in the U.S. You know, what I told you, I got started really in this business with Advance Auto and Dollar General and Sherwin Williams. This sector is really exploding, especially in the REIT space. Back when I started covering these names, there weren't nobody really cared about covering Realty Income and some of these companies. But you know, now they're extremely large companies. Realty Income has, I think, over I think 11,000 rent checks, individual rent checks. So significant uh, scale advantages there. Another sector which is tied in that lease, which we just started covering maybe three years ago, is the gaming sector. We had three gaming REITs at a time. Today we have two, thanks to a merger uh, recently with Vici Properties and MGM Growth Properties just merged. And of course, Vici now is an S&P 500 company. In fact, they are the most profitable S&P 500 year to date in terms of their total return performance. And we picked that name early. We've always liked that sector. It has been extremely resilient, even through the pandemic, where you see a lot of these gaming REITs, Vici specifically collected 100% of their rent uh, during COVID, which is a pretty telling sign of the resiliency of the casino space. Trying to think of other sectors, one of the most interesting and I think most volatile as well as cannabis. Now we cover cannabis. I'll always I'll give you my disclaimer here on this show. It's an extremely volatile sector. It's tied to politics. It's tied to a lot of things that investors need to be aware of. We've written a lot on, on all of the names. Innovative Industrial IAPR is the largest. They were the first mover advantage in the space. We think that's important for them. They've sold off substantially down 50 or 60% year to date. They were one of the top performers over the last two years, and now just totally getting beat up. A lot of that, again, has to do with just some of the headwinds. There's obviously no federal legalization there in cannabis, so it's created really the opportunity set for REITs because there's not as much capital for these operators. Cannabis operation, there are quite a few of those, but we think that at some point, it's not a matter of, you know, there will be, you know, federalization within cannabis, just when. When that does occur, you know, nobody really knows what's going to happen. And so the market has uh, subsequently 
priced a lot of these cannabis REITs to a very low discount. And so that's a very interesting sector there. Office is one that we write and talk about. I just did a pretty lengthy report for I read on alpha members for the office sector. You can really bifurcate office into two different categories, you know, urban office, which is basically New York City, you know, San Francisco. Those markets have certainly been impacted significantly, especially New York City. It started with the tax, you know, all the taxes, people migrating to the South. And then now with COVID, a lot of the companies begin to migrate and continue to migrate to the Sunbelt market. So then you can play in those markets. Those again, Andrew, you're right there in uh, Raleigh. So you've got Highwoods headquartered there, ticker HIW. They obviously have assets in Raleigh, but they're also throughout the South, the Sun Belt and the Southeast. So, you know, there's the office is definitely a, a place where there's a lot of value, but you've got to understand exactly, you know, what you want and what your risk tolerance levels are for those type of property sectors. Uh, so I tried to give you a high level kind of how to get into it. I would say, you know, I tell this to people a lot. You don't want to own just one stock. You want to be thinking about building your portfolio around multiple REITs, but also multiple property sectors. So you try to balance that. You can definitely derive some pretty attractive risk adjusted returns if you play the game right. When I was a kid, I loved playing Monopoly. And perhaps that's part of my passion here as well, because I uh, always wanted to win and I hate losing. And uh, it's not fun when you lose. So, you know, there's some lessons learned from Monopoly as well. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. I have a very similar background. I used to think I was the best at Monopoly, but looking back, I think I had some nice parents. Obviously, there's so much we could unpack and we want to be respectful of your time. Maybe we can focus on the retail side. You mentioned the power center idea before. So whether it's anchored by like a Lowe's or Home Depot, I'm assuming, or kind of like a bigger retailer name, what do you say to the bearish opinion of somebody like Amazon or maybe e-commerce in general, or even like Google Maps, where maybe 15, 20 years ago, location for retail might have been a lot more important Versus now, I mean, personally, I don't care if Target's, you know, one mile to my left or one mile to my right. I'm going to put it in Google Maps and drive over there. But, you know, that could be a very superficial opinion of it. Like, what is your take on the bearish opinions based on, like, location as a advantage? Yeah. So it is interesting. I mean, especially coming from a real estate background and having built, you know, shopping centers, quite a few shopping centers, much like the malls, there's definitely a lot of overbuilding in the US. And so I could definitely be, I never built a mall, but I built you know, shopping centers. And, you know, as I look out the window here in my office, I can see a shopping center that's still about 50% leased. It was built 2009 or 10. It's there's spaces that have never been leased up. So definitely I would say, you know, there's still an oversupply issue, but it really comes down to location and product mix. I think the grocery anchor centers, I really like, you know, especially if you have a grocery center with, you know, I used to say this when I was a developer and I'll say this now as a real estate analyst, you want to own those shopping centers with the the grocery anchor centers with the number one player or the number two player in that market. So, you know, if you go to Atlanta, Georgia, you, you want to own a Kroger or Publix, nobody else, you really don't own those others. If you go to my town here, you're probably going to want to own a, uh, unfortunately, we don't have a Whole Foods here. I would be shopping there every day. 
be doing, you know, close to the next town over, but primary players are Publix in this market. So, you know, if I was going to own a shopping center here, I'd want to own probably a Publix. So I think what's interesting, is not just that you've got those credits that back those anchors, right? It's the tenants, it's the traffic that drives them. So if you look at a Publix, most of the public shopping centers that you We'll see whether I'm in Florida. We've got an office in Florida as well. And I drive around and I see these these public centers are pretty well leased up. They draw all the traffic in. They come every week. So that's why they, you know, you have the subways and the UPS stores because they'll bring in those types of customers, you know, every single week. If you move up to that next level, say that power center, community center, these are those centers that are say 200,000, 300,000 square feet or, or more. And those are REITs like Kimco, for example, they own quite a few of those or Bricksmore is another example. You know, it's a little more challenging. You really have to have some really good demographics supporting those centers, again, because of the overbuilding, uh, but also because you're seeing a number of retailers that are not doing well. For example, Bed Bath & Beyond has been in the news quite a bit. We all know the story about Toys R Us, and we could just go on and on with retailers that aren't around or that are really struggling. And so, you know, you've got to really pick those locations where, you know, when, when those tenants fail, they, you know, those spaces can be leased up. So like Kimco, for example, you know, we noticed that prior to the recession, and this is one thing I give the Kimco management team a lot of credit for, Connor Flynn and his group there, Connor's the CEO of Kimco, is the fact that they were really recycling their portfolio prior to COVID. They obviously didn't know, nobody knew COVID was going to hit. But when COVID did hit, they were in a much better shape because they didn't have a lot of secondary and tertiary market exposure. They were primarily on the East Coast and West Coast. They weren't in these flyover markets. Those might be good markets, but the demographics aren't as strong. So those are the locations you really want to focus in on the demographic profile of those companies. Biddle is is a little small shopping center up in Connecticut, up in that market outside of New York metro, but in Connecticut area. And they've got some of the best demographics, you know, you'll find in the U.S. and with the number one market share grocery anchors. So those have done really, really well. So it's just really, to me, boils down to getting traffic into those centers, making sure that those tenants are successful. It's really been interesting to see, especially we saw the recovery playing out with COVID, you know, how these outdoor uh, venues really perform well. And so, and now we're beyond kind of normalized in that space, we're seeing you know, still now continued growth occurring in those. Now, the other cloud on the horizon, of course, is a recession and, of course, rising rates and inflation. And so all of those tie in as well. You know, it's not coast is clear, even though, you know, everybody feels pretty good about COVID in the rearview mirror. We have all these other you know clouds forming that we're trying to really navigate through. And it, it's interesting because each of these property sectors is going to present its own unique you know, challenges it relates to rising rates or or uh, inflation or even the supply chain. So, you know, what we have to do as analysts is look at each of those property sectors and evaluate, you know, what those risks are to those business models going forward. Because investing in, in REITs just in general, it's, it's really hard. You have to really understand the dynamics for each of those underlying property sectors. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Yeah, that's very well said. And it is 
very nuanced, like you said, depending on which area you're looking at. Just to give us like a parting idea, obviously there's no silver bullet or anything like that. But if you are an investor looking at retail real estate, for example, and you were trying to focus on an aspect of a company that would make it likely do better than its peers, would you look more at location? Would it be cost of capital and kind of just pure economies of scale? Would it be balance sheet? Would it be any of the above? What would you say? Yeah, I would say it would be all of the above, Andrew. And <laughs> you know, I don't like looking at one metric. I mean, we, we do spend a lot of time, for example, interviewing management teams. I have a podcast later this afternoon with the CEO of one of the companies we cover. So we do like to speak with management. But I think that there's two things that I would say that we look at the hardest. If there were just two that I had to rely on, it would be, and you, you touched on both of them, the cost of capital, which again is a competitive advantage, and especially in the real estate space. Um, I never really understood that as much when I was a developer, access to capital, but I didn't go compete head on with REITs. I bought a couple shopping centers for, for some REITs when they were looking to recycle. Did one, I bought one in, in Chester, South Carolina, and another one up in near you and Raleigh. They were both both owned by REITs. I got a pretty good deal, but they were ready to unload those. But I, I didn't understand the cost of capital. I mean, I, we look at these REITs and they really have cost of capital. And so it's important to have that investment grade rating. You know, companies like Federal Realty, which has an A, you know, they're one of the few, I think, A-rated REITs. And so their cost of capital is really attractive, uh, certainly on the debt side. And obviously, is the share price improves the equity side as well. So they can transact very accretively. So and I think and that ties right into their scale advantage that you pointed out as well, just being more efficient. And, you know, it creates you know, scale is great for a couple of reasons. One is it certainly diversifies the risk of the tenants. You don't want to have exposure to too many, all your tenants at one time, all these rent checks coming in. So I think that and also provides that geographic diversification as well. I mean, there are hurricanes, there are events that cause risks to certain markets, certainly the West Coast and the political environment we see on the West Coast is a risk. Some of these REITs are able to expand into Europe. And they have not only that diversification advantage in having some of their assets or properties in Europe, but they also have a, a cost of capital advantage at the same time. This is one thing people don't recognize a lot when companies like Vici Properties or, excuse me, Realty Income, Vici's not in Europe yet. They're going to be probably at some point. But look at Realty Income, how they've expanded in Europe, and now they have you know, much lower cost of debt they're able to obtain in Europe than they can in the U.S., plus they're diversifying. So it's kind of a two for one kind of situation. So I think scale advantage, cost of capital advantage, those are the more dominant names. The companies like Realty Income or Simon Properties or Ventos, or you look at Vici would be another example, who have this dominance and will continue to grow. They're only doing it because they have those two moats. They have that scale, they have that cost of capital, and they're able to continue to grow and grow. Now, I'll leave you with one more fact here is REITs today own roughly 10% of all U.S. institutionally held property. That's a very generalized number. But the reason I want to point that out is there aren't many other asset classes where there is so much opportunity to scale. You know, And the opposite, the opportunity set for REITs is substantial, where you have 90% of... So when you drive home today or you're driving out to the grocery store today... Just think about every, one out of 10 of these buildings, whether it's a warehouse or a fast food chain, are owned by REITs. So there's a lot more potential for REITs to continue to absorb the privately owned real estate 
that is in the marketplace. And I think that's a really big, important thing that people miss. This is not, you know, mature business model. You know, this is a, there's a lot of runway left for REITs over the next uh, several decades. That's a fantastic takeaway. And frankly, it's really exciting too. So Brad, for people who want to learn more about you, what you're doing online, where can they go? Sure. I'll take it my new site. It's called widemoatresearch.com, W-I-D-E, widemoatresearch.com. That's the best place to find me. And thank you both for uh, allowing me to be on the show today. Yeah, we appreciate it, Brad. It was awesome. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.